Born in 1753, Lemuel Haynes was an indentured servant who grew to become a dynamic and influential reformed preacher and abolitionist in the decades surrounding the American Revolution. Nicknamed the Black Puritan, he's often credited as being the first African-American ordained for ministry in the United States. Today, we're pleased to share a short biographical account of Haynes's life and a sermon he wrote and delivered on John 3.3, both of which are adapted from the Selected Sermons of Lemuel Haynes, a new addition to Crossway's Short Classics series. Let's get started. Biography of Lemuel Haynes. Lemuel Haynes, 1753-1833, was one of the most extraordinary Christian preachers in American history. Born to an unknown white woman and African-American man, Haynes spent the first 21 years of life in indentured servitude. Immediately upon his release, Haynes joined the war effort against Great Britain, fighting at Lexington and Concord. After the war, Haynes studied theology and became the first ordained black preacher in the United States. He quickly became celebrated throughout New England for his scholarly yet passionate sermons, most of which he preached while pastoring a predominantly white church in Vermont. Haynes' theological skill, rhetorical ability, and evangelical manner earned him the nickname the Black Puritan. Convinced of Reformed theology, and the sovereignty of God over all of life and history, Haynes wrote and preached to guide the hearts of his audience toward holiness, orthodoxy, especially against the heresy of universalism, and social reform. Today, Haynes is celebrated both as a model of reformed evangelical preaching and as an essential figure in the history of African-American Christianity. A sermon on John 3.3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3. This chapter contains a conference between our blessed Lord and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This great man came to our Savior by night and addressed him in this manner. Rabbi, says he, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. John 3, 2. Doubtless he had a rational conviction from the many miracles that Christ did that he was come from God. Our blessed Lord did not stand to show who he was, but, like a wise and kind teacher, takes occasion to inculcate the importance of the great doctrine of regeneration and tells him, with a double asseveration, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But, as great as this man was, 
we find that he was ignorant in a fundamental point in religion. It appeared a paradox unto him, for he, supposing our Lord must mean a natural birth, asked him in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Christ, in order further to explain his meaning and to show that it was not a natural birth that he had reference to, adds, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 5. By this, perhaps, we may understand that as water is often made use of in the Scriptures as a symbolical representation of the regenerating and sanctifying influences of the Holy Spirit on the hearts of the children of men, so, unless we are born of the water of the Spirit, as divines interpret it, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Our Lord proceeds to tell him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, as if to say, it would be to no purpose if a man should have another natural birth, seeing it would not alter his nature. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Let it be born ever so many times of the flesh, it will still remain fleshly. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Verse 7. And now it seemed a greater mystery to Nicodemus than ever. Therefore he cries out in verse 9, How can these things be? Thus you see, as I observed before, that, although Nicodemus was a great man, a ruler of the Jews, he was ignorant about the new birth. And doubtless it is so now. There are many of the great ones of the earth. Tell them about experimental religion. Tell them that they must feel the Holy Spirit working powerfully on their hearts, that they must be born again. And they are ready to cry out with this master in Israel. How can these things be? But to return to the words first read, in speaking something from these words, I shall pursue the following method. 1. Show the necessity of regeneration or of our being born again. 2. Explain the nature of the new birth or what it is to be born again. 3. Show what we are to understand by seeing the kingdom of God. 4. Make some remarks. First, this will appear if we consider that state that mankind is in antecedent to the new birth. And if we view human beings as they come into the world, we shall then find them haters of God, enemies to God, estranged from God. Nay, the very heart is enmity itself against all the divine perfections, and we shall find them acting most freely and most voluntarily 
in these exercises. There is no state or circumstance that they prefer to the present, unless it be one whereby they may dishonor God more or carry on their war with heaven with a higher hand. They have no relish for divine things but hate and choose to remain enemies to all that is morally good. Now, that this is actually the case with sinners is very evident from the Scriptures. We are told in the chapters of which the text is a part that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, which teaches us that there is nothing truly spiritual or holy in the first birth, but that this comes by the second, or by the renewings of the Holy Ghost. Christ tells the Jews that they hated him without a cause. And the inspired apostle says that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 through 8. Therefore, second, seeing this is the state that human beings are in antecedent to the new birth, it is neither fit nor reasonable that God should bring them into favor with himself or be at peace with them without regeneration. Nay, he cannot, consistent with his perfection, for this would be for him to connive at wickedness when he tells us that he can by no means clear the guilty. And, third, to suppose that sinners can see the kingdom of God or be happy in the divine favor without regeneration or the new birth is a perfect inconsistency or contrary to the nature of the thing. The very essence of religion consists in love to God, and a man is no further happy in the favor of God than he loves God. Therefore, to say we enjoy happiness in God and at the same time hate God is a plain contradiction. Fourth, it is evident from Scripture that those to whom God gives a title to his spiritual kingdom are regenerated or born again and those that are not, and remain so, shall be miserable. This is not only asserted in the text by the Son of God, who was co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential with the Father, whose words stand more permanent than the whole fabric of heaven and earth, and who stands at the gate of the universe and will not alter the things that have gone out of his mouth. I say... It was not only spoken by this glorious being who cannot lie, by his own lips, with a repeated verily, but has been confirmed by those whom he inspired, and who, we are assured, had the mind of Christ. St. Paul gives us the character of a good man, or one entitled to the heavenly world in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And they are said to be renewed in the spirit of their mind and to be born of God.
and they are spoken of as being lovers of God. And respecting those that are not of this character, or that remain enemies to God, he tells us that he will pour out his fury upon them. Hence we read that the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God, and that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. And St. John the Divine, having a view of the glory of the heavenly world, says that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation twenty one twenty seven. Thus we see the propriety of our Lord's assertion that, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. But, as I mean to handle the subject with the utmost brevity, I pass on. 2. To show the nature of regeneration, or what it is to be born again, and here. First, I would consider the agent, or who it is that effects this great work. And if we consider that state that mankind is in by nature, as has been described above, we need not stand long to know who to attribute this work to. It is a work too great to attribute to men or angels to accomplish. None but he who, by one word's speaking, spake all nature into existence, can triumph over the opposition of the heart. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, who is represented in Scripture as emanating from the Father and the Son, yet co-equal with them both. It is God alone who slays the native enmity of the heart, who takes away those evil dispositions that govern the man, takes away the heart of stone and gives a soft heart, and makes him that was a hater of God, an enemy to God, to become friendly to his divine character. This is not wrought by any efficiency of man, or by any external motives, or by any light led into the understanding, but of God. Hence we read that those who receive Christ are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 13 and that it is the gift of God. Also that it is God which worketh in us. Thus, I say, the man is entirely passive in this work. It is all wrought immediately by a divine agency. In regeneration, man is wholly passive. In conversion, he is active. Regeneration is the motion of God in the creature. Conversion is the motion of the creature to God by virtue of that first principle when spring all acts of believing, repenting, and quickening. In all these, man is active. In the other, he is merely passive. Charnock. The man now becomes a new creature. Although he cannot discern what is the way of the spirit, 
as a wise man observes, or how God thus changes the heart, yet he knows that he has different feelings from what he had before. Therefore, second, it is necessary that we consider those things that are the attendance or consequences of regeneration or the new birth, for there are no gracious or holy exercises that are prior thereto, to be sure, in the order of nature. Some seem to suppose faith to be before regeneration, but a little reflection upon the matter will show this to be wrong. By faith we ought to understand a believing of those truths that God has exhibited in his word with a friendly heart. Now, to suppose that a man believes with this friendly heart antecedent to regeneration is to suppose that a man is a friend to God while in a state of unregeneracy, which is contradictory to Scripture. Now, if to believe with a friendly and right-disposed heart is absolutely necessary in order to constitute a true faith, and such a heart is peculiar to the regenerate only, then we must be possessed with this heart, which is given in regeneration, before there can flow from it any such exercises, so that the man must become a good man or be regenerated before he can exercise faith or love or any grace whatever. Hence we read of men receiving Christ and then becoming the sons of God. Therefore, what lies before us is to show what those fruits and effects are and what are those inward feelings that come in consequence of the new birth? First, he loves God supremely. He loves holiness for what it is in itself because it agrees with his new temper. He chooses and prefers that to anything else. He loves the law of God. He loves the gospel and everything that is God-like. He loves the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. His affections are set on things that are above. His treasure is there, and his heart will be there also. He loves the people of God in this world. Nay, wherever moral rectitude is to be seen, he falls in love with it. He loves all mankind with a holy and virtuous love. Although he cannot love those who are the enemies of God with the love of complacency, yet he loves them with the love of benevolence. He is of a noble and generous spirit. He is a well-wisher to all mankind. And this supreme love to God and benevolence to man is spoken of in Scripture as the very essence of true religion. Second, he repents of all his sins. He feels guilty before God. He sees and owns that God is right and he is wrong. He sees and gives in that it would be just for God to consign him over to the regions of despair. Now the man who could take no delight in anything else but sin hates it beyond anything whatever. Now he can acknowledge his sin with holy David. Against thee, the only, have I sinned. Hide thy face from my sins 
and blot out all mine iniquities. Psalm 51, 4, 9. He sees that the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17. Like the publican, afraid to look up, he smites upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, 13. Third, he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I just observe what it was to believe. It is believing the record that God has given of his son with a friendly heart. He gives in to the truths of the gospel with his heart and he knows the truth by his own happy experience. Fourth, he is disposed to walk blameless in all the ordinances of God. He evidences by his holy walk that he has a regard for the honor of God. He endeavors to imitate his divine master in all his imitable perfections, knowing that he saith, He abideth in him, ought himself also to walk even as he has walked. 1 John 2.6 Oh, happy change indeed. The man is made like God in some good measure. He has the same kind of affections and dispositions as there are in God. He has a living principle within him that is active and vigorous, springing up into everlasting life. But we pass on to take notice of the third thing in the method, which was 3. To show what we are to understand by seeing the kingdom of God. Now, we are not to suppose that it is an intuitive view that we have of the kingdom of God, as we behold objects with our eyes. But we are to understand, enjoying or being admitted to possession of the blessings and entertainments of the heavenly world are being brought into the divine favor. He cannot be a partaker of that unspeakable happiness that is in God. He cannot enjoy that blessed intercourse and holy communion that comes to the believer in consequence of his being united to Christ in this world or be admitted to those more sublime entertainments that are above. Something like this we are to understand by seeing the kingdom of God. But it will not be amiss to inquire little what is meant by the kingdom of God. And we may understand, first, the spiritual kingdom of Christ here in this world. I mean that gracious temper of mind or those holy dispositions that are implanted in the heart by regeneration and also when a number of such do unite together in an ecclesiastical body. This is called Christ's kingdom because they not only have Christ's kingdom in their hearts, but also being visibly united together to promote the cause of Christ, they may, by way of eminence, be so styled. And second, we may understand the kingdom of glory or this principle of divine life consummated in the heavenly world 
so that this kingdom that believers have set up in them in this world is the same in kind as it is in heaven. But when we shall come to put off this tabernacle and be embodied spirits in the upper world, our love will be increased, and we shall drink full draughts out of that crystal stream that glides gently through the paradise of God. Oh, did believers once know adequately what is prepared for them in the heavenly world? How would they despise all things here below and long to be on the wing for heaven? Well may it be called a kingdom where are crowns not of gold, but of glory. For the king of kings sits amid the heavenly throng and feeds them with his celestial dainties. And when the body is reunited to the soul at the resurrection, there will no doubt be much higher degrees of glory. Oh, then, let us live as becometh those who are so highly favored of the Lord. Application First, hence see the propriety of our blessed Lord's assertion in the text that, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, or enjoy the favor and love of God, either in this world or that to come. If men are totally depraved, as has been considered, from thence arises the absolute necessity of the new birth, and it is no strange or unaccountable thing that men must be born again. There is no obtaining the blessings of heaven without it. Therefore, says our Lord, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. John 3, 7 Second, Hence learn the folly of all those who rest in anything short of regeneration, or the new birth. For however far we may go in the things of religion, yet if we are destitute of this divine and holy principle, we may be assured of it, from Scripture as well as from the nature of things, that we cannot see the kingdom of God. Third, let us examine ourselves whether we are possessed of this holy temper of heart or not. Have we new dispositions, new affections, and new desires? Are God and divine things the center and object of our supreme love? Have we repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we got that universal benevolence that is the peculiar characteristic of a good man? Do we love the law of God? Have we viewed it in its purity and spirituality? Are we heartily disposed to walk in the ways of holiness? Do we freely and voluntarily choose that way? Are we well pleased with the gospel way of salvation? Fourth, let all those that are strangers to the new birth be exhorted no longer to live estranged from God but labor after this holy temper of mine. Flee to Christ before it is too late. Consider that there is an aggravated condemnation that awaits all impenitent sinners. There is a day of death coming. 
there is a day of judgment coming. A few turns more upon the stage, and we are gone. Oh, how will you answer it at the bar of God for your thus remaining enemies to him? It is sin that separates from God. But it is the being or remaining such that will eternally separate you from him. Never rest easy till you feel in you a change wrought by the Holy Spirit. And believe it, until then you are exposed to the wrath of God, and without repentance you will in a few days be lifted up your eyes in torment. The Lord grant that we may lay these things suitably to heart, that we, having the kingdom of Christ set up in our hearts here, may grow up to the stature of perfect men in Christ Jesus. This will lay a foundation for union with all holy beings. And with this, everlasting happiness in the kingdom of glory is inseparably connected through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That was a short biographical account and a sermon adapted from The Selected Sermons of Lemuel Haynes, which is part of Crossway's short classics series. To find out how you can get 30% off a print copy of the book or 50% off the ebook or full audiobook, visit crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider telling a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.